You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, this morning we are getting close to the end of not just summer, I know it's September, and, uh, but we're getting close to uh, the end of our series with the Minor Prophets, and we're looking at Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah is an amazing book, and I thought, why in the world do I have to spend... I had the shortest amount of time to study this week. Is you ever have one of those weeks, you know, and just like, oh my goodness, Frank, you get them all the time, right? I see you in the house. You have one of those weeks all the time, right? All the time, all the time. yeah. And if you don't want to make sure she gives you one of those weeks. <laughs> so anyway, but I thought, Lord, why is this a short week for me with all I got going on? And there's 14 chapters. Oh my goodness, what happened to, you know, one of the little short chapters? Zechariah is the most like the book of Revelation of all the minor prophets. There's crazy visions and horsemen and all kinds of stuff running around the woods. But it is also a book that, that Zechariah quotes from the other old, rest of the Old Testament just dozens and dozens and dozens of times and way more than all the others. And it's also interesting, the New Testament quotes him uh, quotes this book so many, so many times, and he refers to Jesus and uh, Jesus coming uh, more than, than most, if not all the other prophets. So an amazing, cool book this morning. And we're going to look at specifically just, just chapter 3. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, he's going to try to preach on all 14 chapters at once. Nope, I'm not even going to try to do a summary or a survey. Uh, treat this like when you go for Chinese takeout, like the sample platter. So we're going we're gonna to sample a little bit of Zechariah this morning, if you will. And I want us to see how great of a salvation that God works in our life when he saves us. Three things this morning that, that God does when he saves us. So turn with me in Zechariah chapter 3, and uh, we'll focus our attention here this morning. The Bible says this in verse 1 of Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So get the picture. Uh, Zechariah is having this, it's his like revelation stuff. He's seeing this vision and God's revealing and showing him different things. And so uh, he is being shown something that's coming later on. So Zechariah is there and God is revealing to him as a prophet, like future kind of stuff. And so God showed him, then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Zechariah is getting a picture in heaven. The angel of the Lord is there, and in a minute we really get a glimpse that it's really God himself. So occasionally in the Bible, and the Bible refers to the angel of the Lord as talking about God himself, and this is one of those instances. So Zechariah sees God in heaven, he sees Satan there on the right hand. The right hand was a place of ac uh, accusation. Any attorneys in the house? Anybody who's an attorney? Everybody, I won't ask anybody who's gone to court, but any court show I've ever seen, the prosecution is always on the, the judge's left, right? And then the defense is always on the right. Isn't that how it works? Somebody help me? Yes? Okay. So this is reverse. The, the accuser, the prosecution, was always on the right, so there's God, there's Satan, the accuser, there's Joshua that would be in the defense, if you will, and Satan is accusing Joshua, the high priest of Israel. This is what Zechariah sees. Now watch how this goes. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem 
rebuke you. It's not this, and I can picture God pointing to the high priest, it's not this, a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away, your, your sin, and all of the, 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 the clothes were a picture of his life. I've taken your iniquity, your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's a picture that this is not a normal angel. It's God himself. And I said, let them put a clean turban, legit turban, kind of wrap around the head. This is Middle Eastern culture. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This is talking about Jesus. When the Bible refers to the branch, it's referring to Jesus, predicting the time that Jesus is promising that he would bring this, this new growth, this branch that would bring salvation and uh, blessing through him to the world. And he says in verse 9, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. On one day, I'm going to remove all the iniquity. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The vine and fig tree are, are a picture in the Old Testament. It's a theme throughout it. And it even gets touched on in the New Testament, a picture of the salvation and the blessing and the peace and the security spiritually and, and ultimately in every way that God will bring upon his people through this new move, through bringing the Messiah and moving it forward. This is an amazing chapter that, that we see three things this morning that God does profoundly in our life when he saves us from our sin. First thing I want you to recognize is God delivers us from the accuser. God delivers us from, from the enemy, Satan. The word Satan means adversary. He's known in the Bible as that, he's referred to as that dragon or the, the devil, the serpent, the, the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is the accuser of the brethren. In fact, Revelation chapter 12, 10. Let me read that for you. Hopefully it'll be on your screen. But look at 12, chapter 12, verse 10. And John is here in the book of Revelation and, he's, and the Bible says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers, that's you and me, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. When God saves you and I from our sin, when we come to our senses and we finally admit our sin before holy God of heaven and we turn away from that, and we put our full trust and assurance in Jesus dying on the cross to save us and nothing else, not being a good person, 
not praying, not being a religious person, not being a person of faith, not, not anything else, not our, our baptism or any religious thing that we did as a kid, but when we realize Jesus is the only one that saves us and we surrender our life to him as Lord, in that moment, whether it's whether there was a season in our life that we kind of were learning and growing and we were awakening, we come to that point where we say, okay, God, I give up. I trust you. From that point forward, we become a child of God and we're saved of our sins and we're forgiven of our sins and we have that new life that God has given us. And in fact, this morning, we're going to celebrate that in just a few minutes when we participate in the Lord's Supper, a picture of Jesus' death on the cross for us, a picture of his blood shed for us, a picture of his body that was, was broken for us, and we, we remember that. It's the very core of our faith. And the first thing that we see in this passage that God does when he saves us is he delivers us from our adversary, who accuses us, the Bible says, day and night before God in heaven. See, Satan is in the sin business. He, he's much like the stockbroker, you know, I, look at it, talk to a stockbroker and they'll tell you if the stocks are up and down and what's going on with the market, then they could tell you about all the different markets and all of that. And I've listened to some of the guys and my eyes start glazing over and, and I may as well be watching a Tetris game or something, you know, playing like a little video game, watching all the stuff going on. And, and, uh, but Satan himself, he's in the sin business. You see, he pays attention to our sin. In fact, he knows your sin better than you do. Because his goal in life right now is to do everything he can to undermine the authority of God, to bring shame upon God, and to do everything that he can to send every person straight to hell, a one-way ticket to hell. To, the Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so he, he will regularly bring up yours and my failures, in fact, the sins of the world before a holy God in heaven. Now, he knows exactly who God is, and so he doesn't make this stuff up because God knows. God knows exactly what's reality. You and I will, you know, when we get in fights with people, we'll inflate things and we'll say things and we'll make a little bit more of them than they really are sometimes, you know, to kind of prove our point. Satan doesn't do that. He just accuses us with reality. He accuses us with our own junk that we've absolutely done. Remember when he was there visiting God in heaven and God turns to Satan and said, Hey, you seen my man Job lately? And Satan's like, Yeah, he's no big stuff. And he says, God, you put a, a wall around him. You won't even let me press in on him. You won't let me give him a hard time. You won't let me put some stress on him. You let me put some stress into his life and we'll see. We'll see. I'll make him cry out against you. You see, Satan wants you and I, he tempts us into sin, ultimately so that he can then turn around and accuse us before God because he knows that God is holy and just, and out of God's holiness and justice must condemn the sinner. And so Satan doesn't so much put new stuff in us as much as he just plays on what's already there. You see, all of us have temptations in our life. All of us have sin, and it's not so much that Satan has to bring new things into us. There's fertile ground in each of our lives of different areas, and we are genuinely tempted by things that he's put in this world. Now, I, let's be careful, because people can blame a whole lot in their life. Well, the devil made me do it. It's all his fault. You know, that's like taking the responsibility off of you and shuffling it somewhere else. We've been playing that game a long time, ever since you and I were little kids. 
<laughs> we always try to find somebody else to blame. We can't do that. But what he does do is we're the ones responsible. We're the ones that already have those tendencies and those things in our heart, those, that sinfulness, and he plays on it. And he turns around and he accuses us before the God of heaven. Now, here's what I love, is that God of heaven rebukes him personally for that. You see, God himself advocates for you and me when we trust Jesus as Lord of our life. When you and I are saved, Satan no longer has legal standing before the judge. You see, when, God, when you and I surrender our life to Jesus, God forgives us. He justifies us. He covers our sin. And there is no legal ground before the God of heaven. Now think about this. If you work for a company and the, the, the president of that company, if he or she advocates on your behalf, there's no one greater who has more authority, who has more influence, has more ability to speak up and stand up for you. And when that person advocates for you, it's over. It's, it's done. That's why when we were all little kids, if you had a brother and sister, we would always appeal to mom or dad. We'd want to go up to the next level, right? Because we knew that the next level, that's where our security is. So I want you and I to realize this morning that when God saves us from sin, there is nothing, no one in this world that can bring a legal accusation against all the junk that you and I have done. We are free and innocent of all of that free. Now, it doesn't take much of a, a, you know, imagination or thinking to realize that, well, if Satan accuses us before, accuses us before God, he's not going to be bashful in accusing us to ourselves or even each other. And we need to remember that as a child of God, that Jesus' death on that cross settles it. So this morning, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're looking back to 2,000 years ago when our sins were taken care of. The, the biblical term is they were atoned for. They were, the, the, the requirement of the law has been met and Jesus died on the cross. God's economy of this world is that sin always brings forth death. And so for you and I, when we've sinned to escape death, to get out of that punishment, out of that natural consequence that we've earned, somebody has to die instead of us. And that one who died was Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross was the final say in all of this. And it's completely exciting to me, and I hope it is for you this morning, to know that when you're a child of God, the God of this universe no longer sits in anger or judgment of your sin. The stuff in your past that you look back and you feel guilty about, the stuff that you look back and that you regret, the stuff that you look back and wish that you had a mulligan over. I'm not a golfer, but a mulligan is right. You get like a do-over. I don't know how that works. It's the only game that I know. You're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Let me try this again. But we all wish we could do that in life and more than once. I, I wish I could have like 10 or 12 of those. And God says, you don't need it. I look at that. And I don't see it. You are free and clear. In fact, the enemy, God explains to Satan, he says, isn't this a brand that's pulled out of fire? Now, he's really, I believe, doing that for our benefit. Satan isn't ever owned an explanation. 
God, when he rebukes Satan, used none other than just his own name and his own person of who he is. I just, I love that subtlety in this passage. He just says, I rebuke you. I have chosen Jerusalem. I rebuke you, Satan. And then he gives an explanation, I believe for our benefit. Isn't this that stick? You've all, we've all had campfires before and you pull that stick, you save it out of there, you know, you pull it out or whatever and it's kind of scorched on the end, but you can pull the stick out before it's totally burned. That's what God has done with you and me. You see, that fire is a picture of the judgment that we're deserved and that's coming our way. And in Zechariah and in the Revelation, that's all the crazy stuff. It's a picture of the judgment that's going to come when Jesus comes to this world to put all injustices right and to bring punishment to all of that wrong. And he turns to, to us, and what he has done through Jesus is he snatched us out of that fire. And we might have a little bit of uh, uh, a little burning, if you will, a little bit of scorching about us. We might smell a little smoky, but God has saved us out of that fire and delivered us from condemnation and death and hell. And he turns to the only one who would dare speak against us and he says, it's done. I rebuke you and there is no higher authority in this land. So this morning, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, that is yours. You have that. There's no need for your false shame and guilt in your past. It's forgiven and over. Can, do you have regrets? Sure. But don't allow those to go too far. Don't allow the enemy to whisper in your ear. He's going to accuse you for sure. But you're forgiven. You need to remember those truths. Don't allow the not measuring up and not meeting all those expectations. The God of heaven looks at us and says, Done. There's nothing to condemn. If you and I will have that attitude, it will save us from serious things that we've done in the past. It'll save us even in how we look and compare ourselves to other people. The shame and the, the, or the embarrassment or the, even just the sense of not living up to what other people have done and comparing ourselves with others. God in heaven looks at us and says, you're good in my eyes. You're perfect and good. Done. Done. He delivers us from the accuser. Second thing that, that happens when you and I are saved from our sins, not only does God deliver us from the, the accusations, from the accuser, the enemy, as we just saw here in, in the first couple of verses of, of chapter 3, but God takes away our filth and he gives us purity, really his purity. So that the next picture in the scene that we get is is here's the high priest standing for God. Now, the high priest is the top spiritual dude in all the land. Top guy. And he's standing before the holy God of heaven in whose presence sin can never enter into because he's so holy. And all the enemy was doing was just like, look, this guy's filthy in sin. Look at all of his stuff. The garments are a picture of that. New Testament talks about, uh, Jesus talked about, being invited to a wedding feast and being invited to salvation and that experience of heaven and him putting on a clean wedding robe for each one of us. And this is a picture of that. So the filthiness is a picture of the sin in our lives. And the enemy is pointing at that. Now, notice that God in heaven doesn't just close his eyes and just kind of blindly like, I don't know what you're talking about. God looks at us like the high priest here and says, oh yeah, I see all of that junk. Take off those clothes, 
and put on new, perfectly white, clean clothes. See, what God does is he doesn't just deliver us from the accusations. And reality is, is he, he removes the filth of the stuff in our, in our lives. Have you, have you ever seen, I think it's easier to see it in somebody else than ourselves, all right? So go with me for a little bit, but have you ever seen other people sin and just realize that was really disgusting and filthy? Might, might be somebody you don't know closely. I mean, we, we, you, see, you see murders, you see the, we could start at the popular, not popular, but the, what we've seen so much, the mass shootings. That's disgustingly filthy. But then it can come down to the, the deviant and some of the stuff we hear in the news, just filthy, filthy. And, and then we get a little closer to home and, and we see those things around us and just the, you know, the hostility and the antagonism. It's easier for us to see those things in other people's hearts. But when God looks at us, we're all filthy before a holy God. We all have the, the revenge and the, the hatred and the, the prejudice and the violence and the selfishness and the, all of the lust and the greed and all of the junk. And when God looks at our life, we are absolutely filthy before him. But when he saves us, that moment when we surrender our life to Jesus, that's when the picture of this is happening, the angels coming and peeling off the sinful robe, the, the, the filthy clothes, and putting on a fresh, perfectly clean, and bathed us, if you will. And all of that junk in the past is covered and, and removed. You know, it's a picture of, of, of what, can you imagine some of the lepers in Jesus' day? Leprosy is a horrible disease. It's just the, the open sores and the oozing and then just the slowly eating away of the flesh and just eating away of your, the fingers and all of that. And Jesus didn't hold the lepers at afar. He came and he touched them. You see, it's a picture of what God does is our spiritual soul is like those, those the, the, the clothes and the filthy, tainted clothing, and God himself peels them off of us, and he heals us, and he cleanses us, and he puts on a perfect robe of, of righteousness. See, that's why God can stand up for us legally and say, there's no ground to accuse, because God himself is the one that removes those things failings. Notice that Joshua, the high priest, didn't do it. God didn't tell Joshua, hey, Joshua, come back in a week when you got this cleared up. Hey, Joshua, we've got a hazmat room for people just like you. Uh, you clearly didn't visit it. You need to go step in there and let somebody take care of it. Now, if you got that, you take care of that and come here. God himself takes care of this for us. He sent his son Jesus to this earth you and I try to take care of it ourselves. We do. And we can't. It's impossible. 
because as soon as we try to, with this hand to take some of the junk out of our life, this hand is tainted and dirty, and our souls are filthy. Yeah, there's some things that we could do to reform us a little bit, maybe, you know, kind of New Year's resolutions and maybe get some things under control. But when our soul is filthy in every area, you can't clean that up yourself. You can't. It's an impossibility. You can reform an area of your life, and you might even be able to reform many areas of your lives for a season. But let's be honest. We can't do that very well. That's why there's life coaches, and that's why there's all kinds of... Everything that we try to get under control, whether it's our exercise, our eating, or our attitudes, or whatever, that we struggle at that because we can't reform ourselves in all of these areas. We can't. And even if we could, we're still guilty of past transgressions. So God removes the guilt and the shame, and then he brings purity into our life, his purity. In fact, he gives us his righteousness, his goodness, is what we discover in the New Testament these clothes are all about. It's Jesus' perfection put on top of you and me, and he pulls us out of the fire and out of all of that. This morning as we celebrate the supper, that's what this is meant to remind us about, that God has forgiven us, that he has saved us, and he's changed our lives. So if you, have, if you are a spiritual person, and if you are a person of faith, a person who's, who's you know, going to church or whatever, but you have never in your heart committed your soul to the God of heaven, surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, these two things that I've talked about this morning are not yours. They don't belong to you. You stand legally condemned before the God of heaven. The accuser has full right and justification to, against you, and there's no hiding. And, and on top of it, you're standing before God in a filthy soul. And what God wants to do this morning for you, if that's describing you, because you've never surrendered your life to Christ, as God is saying, is this morning, trust me. Would you trust me to clean you up? I will meet you exactly where you are. You don't have to clean your life up. In fact, you can't. But I do require you to take my offer of salvation my way, which is simply faith in my son, turning from your sins and accessing this forgiveness, accessing this righteousness, accessing this freedom from accusation and shame by simply trusting Jesus. So this morning, depending on which side of that decision you are, if you had that decision that's still in front of you, I urge you to surrender your life to Jesus and to trust him. That's the big thing you need to hear. If you've already trusted and were truly surrendered, I'm asking you to reflect back and to know that where you stand today you are innocent, and God of heaven loves you and accepts you, not based on your stuff, but based on all that he's done. Now, the third thing that God does before we celebrate in our supper and I bring our team up is that God then in turn reaches out to the people around us to share this incredible message of salvation, this incredible message, and he, he does it through us. Notice the, the last verse of, of chapter 3. 
And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, and that day of salvation, the day that God says He's going to remove sin on that one day, a picture of that day that Jesus would come and die on that cross and pay and atone for sins, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is so significant for us today. God is saying, look guys, in that day when you have that salvation and you are free and clear, no longer condemned, and I have forgiven you and you receive this new righteous robe, in that day you're going to have the, my blessings upon you. You're going to live in, your soul is going to live in peace and security and have all the, that I planned for you in salvation. All of that. You see, God, the Bible so often speaks in concretely terms, more abstract ter- about things that are abstract, things that are a little harder to nail down. And so to, to be able to just sit at ease, if you will, under your vine and under your, your tree, your shade tree or whatever, is a picture of the, the blessing of salvation that God was protecting and providing for Israel and protecting and providing for their souls. It's a picture of the the peace that they were then experiencing because God was no longer looking at anger towards sin, but rather looking at only righteousness, that God goes from the one that would condemn us to the one who actually stands as our advocate and defends us. And so he's telling them, this is going to be a time when you experience this. He's really telling Israel, this day is coming and it's coming in the future but it's a picture of what you and I experience in our salvation in this life. And he's he's telling us that we will be a people that will invite others to come and begin to experience the blessing of salvation and peace that we get to experience. It's, It's a promise that you and I, that as God begins to work in our life and he saves us, that he wants other people to see something going on in our life, to invite them to enjoy that. He doesn't say that everybody will have their own tree. He's he's pointing to the future ministry that we will have in inviting people to experience this incredible relationship with the God of heaven and this incredible salvation that they too can have that and share it. God says to, to Joshua, and as he turns to him, he says, look, if you will walk in my ways, that's what he says in verse 6, and keep my charge, then you shall have rule of my house, talking about the temple, and have charge of my courts. He says, look, Joshua, if you serve me, if you live a life before me, that's with me, walk in all of my ways of godliness and serving me, honoring me and putting me first in your life, then I'm going to use you profoundly to make this temple a place of salvation, a place where the peoples of the world will come. We talked last week that God, Jesus and God's whole point of the, of the temple was to be a place of salvation, a place that all the nations of the world could come and pray and know the God of heaven. And then we turn and we discover here at the very end of the chapter 3 that we each have a place in that plan. You see, here's my point. 
When God saves us and forgives us all of that, he blesses us, he delivers us, he blesses our soul, but he gives us a ministry purpose and a focus, each one of us, beyond ourselves to somebody else. Every one of us. And there's a promise in this that God will use you to touch other people's lives if you will allow him to, that he's put you in relationship and in contact and with other people to help them, to help them to experience the spiritual blessing of God. But for you and I to be used of God in that way, we first have to recognize and realize where people really are, that they're lost and without hope, without Jesus. We have to recognize that. We have, a, a, as you, many of you guys know, we have three cats. That's about one cat too many for my taste, just being real honest. For some of you, are like, yeah, that's three cats too many, and that's okay. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're saying anything bad against cats. Cats are, most cats are pretty cool. They're, I'm, they're, they've grown on me. But I got one that ran across the road, apparently, a couple, two or three months ago, and uh, he disappeared for two or three days. And some of you are like, oh, Sean, you should never let cats out. Well, okay. We'll have that conversation offline. I'm just a bad cat parent, I guess. I don't know. My philosophy is they're a cat, and if they live a short life, I'd rather them live a short life as a cat and do what cats do rather than be claustrophobic in my house. But that's a whole other philosophy of cat rearing, I guess. But anyway, so it went across the road. And uh, it didn't show up for two days. And we found it barely able to walk. It apparently had gotten hit and uh, took it to the vet. And uh, the vet said, yeah, the pelvic is supposed to look like this, and it looks like this. And its hip was out of joint, and out of its socket, and all of that. And so we said, what do we do? And they're talking surgery and amputations and stuff. And I'm just like, I, I, it's a cat. I care about this cat, but it's also a cat. So two, uh, we got a second opinion, and they actually conferred and said, yeah, just leave the hip out of joint, and uh, if it's able to go to the bathroom, okay, cats have, really do have nine lives, and it will probably live a productive life and walk a little funny, so that was our course of action, and the cat walks a little funny, and it's pretty happy, and life is going on, and anyway, it walks funny, and it flops over, and it sits in positions that I didn't think were possible, and <laughs> probably are not possible, except when your hip's out of its socket, your leg can just do different things, you know, and, uh, and it's just, it just doesn't look normal. So here's the picture that I have of the world around us. The, the world around us has been in a car accident. Their souls have been run over by sin, and they're hurting, and they're walking funny, and their lives are a wreck. And you and I need to realize if we're not careful as Christians, if we don't put these glasses on and look at the lenses around us, we view the world more political, we view it more as a social, just, you know, this versus that, and it's not. What we're watching around us are people whose souls have been run over. They're struggling with personal identities, not knowing who they really are. They're struggling with insecurities. They're, they're, they're struggling with fears. They're, they're struggling with shame. They're struggling with past abuse. 
They're struggling with all kinds of stuff. And it's all spiritual, primarily in nature. And they're hurting. And they sit in funny positions and they fall over and they don't act the way that we would think they ought to. And, and we ought to have a huge compassion for their soul in the process of that. Huge compassion. You see, we're seeing all the symptoms. I, I knew my cat had been in an accident. Why? Because I saw the symptoms. Like, this cat ain't walking right. And, it, and it's meowing and acting funny and it's hurting. The world around us doesn't know that it's been in an accident. Doesn't know that it's because of sin and all of these things. And it's struggling for solutions, just much like my cat doesn't know why it can't jump onto a chair anymore without losing its balance and flopping over and doing weird things. And so you and I, as we know Jesus, we still struggle too. I'm, I want us to be careful as a church that we don't ever act like, oh, we got it all together and our stuff is all perfect and everything's wonderful. We're still tainted by sin too, but we at least have the solution, the antidote, and are growing in that. And what this passage is telling us is that as we experience the blessing and the peace and the joy and the security and the forgiveness and the removal of shame and the removal of guilt and the overcoming of all of our past and the ability to walk in freedom, that's a stark contrast to what most of the world is walking around with. And they're going to want a taste of that, many of them. And your job and my job is to invite them into our world, under our shade tree, into our life, so that they can get a taste of what God is all about and what that is about. Because he wants to save them through our lives. He wants them to see the gospel. Sean, do you believe the world around us, and I'm thinking of the U.S., I care about the world but I've not lived everywhere in the world to be able to speak with nearly as much authority as I can here in the U.S. Um, here in the U.S., do, Sean, are you saying, is our world beginning to get worse and worse? Yeah, I really believe that. Do, do, are people hurting or things more an issue than ever before? I believe that. But I believe the core of it is, is because increasingly people don't know who God is. They don't have a relationship with him. And it's the natural result that happens when you're cut off from God. Think about it this way. I went fishing yesterday. And you catch a fish. If you ever catch a anybody here ever caught a pickerel before? Pickerel fish, some of you guys. How many of you know what a pickerel fish even is? Wow, i got to use some new metaphors that you guys know what in the world I'm talking about. They're really long. They're like a little torpedo. Their nickname is called a slime dart because they're as slimy as all get out. And they squirt right out of your hands and they've got teeth. They're just, you got to be careful with them. Anyway, and they, for whatever reason, when you catch them, they flop around the boat more than all the other fish combined. Why? Because they know something's wrong and they're out of water and they know their life is at stake. That's what the world's doing around us. They're flipping out and they're out of joint and they know that they're separated. They experience it. And the problem is they're separated from a holy God in heaven who loves them. Whether they admit it or not, whether they believe in that God or not, it's irrelevant. They're experiencing the natural, physiological, spiritual, what happens when your soul is disconnected from God. A fish can no more live out of water than a person can out away from God. It's not possible. And, and all of that is going on. Think about it this way. Think about a baby. Nobody has to tell a baby that it needs to be touched and cared for and coddled. Nobody tells a baby that it needs to eat. 
it just knows those things and it craves them and will cry if it doesn't get it. That's what's going on with the world around us. They're craving and crying these things and they're craving and crying for God. And we have the, have the answers to that. And so what God is promising us this morning is that he will use us to invite other people if we are willing to open our lives up, to put ourselves out there, to allow other people to enjoy our blessings that we experience, to help them begin to taste of those truths. And along that way, they will discover Jesus is their Lord. And then the blessing moves not just from us, but then it moves to them and they have their own vine that they're sitting under and then their family and friends and connections and other people get to experience that. That's what all of us as Christians are called to be a part of and of doing. That's what all of us, when we are called, uh, it's what missionaries are to do when they go into other lands. It's what you students are being taught with crew to how you connect and love on and get to know students. It's, it's what God calls all of us to do. So this morning, if you know Jesus, I want you to know that you're no longer accused, that God himself advocates on your behalf and loves you. I want you to know that he's removed the sin and the stains and the filth from you and given you purity. And I want you to know that he's given you a purpose in ministry and life to use you, to not just bless you, but through the blessings that he gives to you to allow other people to experience that change. That's what we're all about as a church, is life change, helping people know and follow Jesus because that's when that, those changes really happen to us. So as our team, Sarah Daniel, come up to lead us in worship, I'm grateful for them jumping in and, and helping out as Jeremy has left. He moved, by the way, and I presume is leading church in his church this morning, leading worship in his church in Oklahoma this morning, and grateful for them jumping in and helping us in this interim. But this morning, I want you to, to focus on those truths. Uh, there's something in here for everybody. So do you know Jesus? If you don't, focus on that today. If you do, focus on what he's done and prepare your hearts for the table, our Lord's Supper. And also think about the others. Much as we're going to pass these, our ushers are going to come here in just a split second. Ushers, I'm going to pray and you're going to come up during that time. Just as we pass these elements along to other people, we all should be those ushers in everybody else's life passing along the words and the hope of salvation to them from one person to the next to the next. So focus in on something there this morning as we, uh, as we take our time to worship God the way he told us to. So pray with me. Ushers, come up, and we'll pass these out as we sing. Lord in heaven, thank you for Jesus who loved us and died on the cross for us. Thank you that we are forgiven. Lord, I'm grateful that when I feel the pain of my own sin even now, that it's appropriate for us as Christians to feel that, but God, I'm grateful that in that same breath I can turn around and know that I'm forgiven. I don't have to wonder or walk on eggshells before you like some people have experienced in their childhood when they did wrong and wonder if mom and dad were going to blow up at them. God, you stand and you advocate for us. Carte blanche across the board that we stand free and clear and forgiven and we're washed 
Father, thank you for that. Help us individually to pray for and to reach out and to share and be open, to, to talk and ask questions and just live our life with other people who need you. God, would you spread that message of salvation through us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.